I want to continue today speaking about this series, The Fire from Heaven, and that uh, today we're going to go into Acts chapter 16 and 17, and we're going to see how the fire spreads from, from heaven from, to the Middle East and all the way into Europe, okay? The fire from heaven spreads to Europe, and it's interesting that Naomi mentioned Malachi because I was just sharing a little bit with Sherry, a little bit of that, that I was going to be talking about the, the fire from heaven spreading to, to Europe. And she said, well, you know why it took 400 years for God to uh, intervene in this world from Malachi to Jesus' birth is like 400 years. Did you know that? You see, your children knew that if they're in Sherry's Sunday school class, okay? 400 years between Malachi. I mean, we get upset when four days things don't happen. Four hours things don't happen. I prayed this morning, Lord, what's the matter? Why am I still suffering? Well, because we want to see it too quick and we don't pray enough, I think. But anyway, 400 years, you know what? It's all about God's timing. It was all about God's timing. Paving the way for the gospel. Needed, there were three things that needed to happen in those 400 years. Three things needed to happen. Your children could tell you this. They wouldn't need to look at my notes on the board. One is that Alexander the Great had to conquer that territory and enforce the language of Greek on the entire civilization. Why is that important? Well, what did they speak in the New Testament? Eric, did you know the answer to that question? Eric's visiting with us today. Welcome, Eric and Roger. Thank you, Roger, for bringing a friend along today. Yes? Greek, the business language. Yeah, that's how they transacted business, was with Greek. So we're transacting the business of the kingdom. Everyone in that area had to speak Greek. So Alexander the Great, as wicked as he was, great, um, was God's instrument. It was about timing. You know, the same thing happened in China where the communists took over China and enforced one language on the Chinese people. They had thousands of dialects before. Now they all speak a common language. And where's the gospel spreading the fastest in the world today? Not in Byron Center. It's China. God's timing. So there needed to be a common language. There needed to be... Then the Romans took over from the Greeks, you know. And you know what Romans were really good at? Building roads. They paved roads so that they didn't know they were paving the roads for Paul and Silas, for Barnabas and and Saul to travel into the uh, upper regions of Macedonia and all the way into Europe and ultimately all the way to Rome. The Romans thought they were just paving roads to make it more convenient to transact business and to control people. They were actually building roads for the gospel to spread all the way to Europe. You know what else the Romans were good at? They conquered. There was peace in the land. They would not have gone out to, uh, to these foreign lands if there was uh, a lot of criminal activity taking place. The Romans had brought peace. If there was war between these different countries, they would not have been able to bring the gospel. Even into Mexico, people are saying, some of the, the guys I know saying, well, we're not going to that part of Mexico. There's no, there's, there's no peace there. It's too dangerous to go, to go there. 
So the three things that were needed in those 400 years were common language, paved roads, and peace. In the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven, golly, I forget what they were again. I, man, what is that? What was the last words that Jesus said to his disciples before he went to heaven? I can't remember. Will somebody help me, please? Somebody say it out loud. To what? To feel shaky? That's good, too. To speak in tongues? Yeah, that's good, too. To experience a healing? Yeah, that's good, too. To be my what? Does that mean we all have to travel like Paul did? Does that mean we all have to, like, go into dangerous places and be stoned and suffer loss and all that kind of stuff? Not necessarily. You go to work every day. It's like a foreign land. You go to work every day, it's like a foreign country. There's people around there who have nothing, who, they're not interested in the gospel. This is hard territory. But you're sent as a missionary to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to southeast Grand Rapids, to southwest Grand Rapids, to the inner city, to Holland, to Zealand, to be my witnesses, to live in your neighborhood, to carry on business. Paul actually says to the Thessalonians, we're going to get in, I'm, I'm way at the end of my sermon already, but I just feel to say this. He's going to go into Thessalonica, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's suffering persecution for the message. And then two years later, he writes a letter to the Thessalonians, and he says, now, he's saying, it, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, to mind your own business. Huh, what kind of ambition is that? Man. I want to go, I want to go and conquer the world. You satisfied with going to work every day? Huh? Make it your ambition. This is Paul's direction to the Thessalonians. I, the reason I'm saying this is because I think we live under this burden that I'm not doing anything for the kingdom. I want to be a world changer. I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Silas. Well, that's good. But I tell you what needs to be the driving force in your life is the same driving force that drove Paul to do what he did, and that was his love for people. That was his, he had caught the heart of God for every person in the world. When he got to this city, he saw another city. There's lost people over there. There's lost people over there. You see, the passion for the lost is what drove Paul. It's why he could continue doing what he did. It's why he contextualized his behavior when he uh, took Timothy on his, on his mission trip with him and he had him circumcised. He was being so careful not to offend people so that it might keep them from the gospel. He did everything was, was motivated by, I want to know how this can help people, draw people into the kingdom of God. Sean told me today a new, new family moved into the trailer park and he's befriending him. He invited him to his to church today. And Sean said this guy was poor and he didn't have the kind of clothes that he thought he should wear when he comes to church. So Sean went over to pick him up for church today, knocked on his door, and Sean had on one of his oldest shirts. 
with holes in it. So the guy would know he doesn't have to have really nice clothes to come to church. Sean was contextualizing the gospel for that man. The guy said, no, maybe not today. You know what Sean said? I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. Sean's got the heart of Paul. I think God wants all of us to have the heart of Paul. I go from one city to another city to another city because he loved people. Man, oh day. That's what Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is all about. We're all the way up to Acts chapter 16. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. The, the theme I want you to come away from today is that God values every person in the world. Every person that you run across in your life, God values him. God values her. And I think God wants to have put on us his heart for people. He cares about your neighbor that irritates you. He cares about that worker next door who, who, who gives you trouble. We're going to see here in chapter 16, the first converts in the nation, in, in the continent of Europe, are in the city of Philippi. Philippi. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. You notice that the, the dialogue changes here, and, and, and Luke must have joined the team here because he says, Therefore, we're sailing from Troas. We ran a straight course. Up until now, he's been talking about the team, those guys, that group, they. Now he's saying we. So Luke has picked up. Maybe he was Paul's personal doctor. I don't know. And they came across the city of Philippi. It was the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where they Prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. Now, why? every city he went into before, he would always go to the Jewish synagogue first. Remember that? I mean, you're, you're remembering how he would always go to the Jewish synagogue first because he was preaching, he was hoping to catch the God-fearers on the outside of the synagogue. The people were hanging around the synagogue but hadn't become Jews as yet. So he was like going where the gospel might best be received. He wasn't a fool. <laughs> He was going where the harvest might be the most ripe, okay? He was going where the pickings might be good, where there were God-fearing Greeks. He would go to those Jewish synagogues. Well, in Philippi, there must have been a very small Jewish community because they had no synagogues. It would only take 10 adults, Jewish adults, to establish a synagogue in a city. That's why there were lots of synagogues in every one of these cities that he went to. But Philippi had no synagogue, so he went to the place he found out where do people who, are, who, who love God, who are God-fearers, where do they usually gather? Well, down by the river with Lydia. You see, Lydia was a successful businesswoman. Says she was a seller of purple. Now, the reason that we know she was wealthy is because purple was a very rare dye. Very few people had it, and she, uh, it, it, it was a dye that was drawn drop by drop from a, a certain shellfish. Now, you learned something today. Whew. I always want to try to give you something you can go home with. 
So Lydia was a successful businesswoman. Sometimes we stay away from the successful people thinking they got it all together. But I want to tell you, successful business people, you need to also see through the outside. There's a lot more to them than what meets the eye. Successful business people also need a savior because they are spiritually empty. They may not uh, convey that to you, but you need to see beyond the surface. Successful people are spiritually empty. They're also lonely. They also carry a sense of guilt if they've never asked God to forgive their sins. Maybe they're trying to do mental gymnastics, saying there's no such thing as sin. But deep down inside, they know the difference between right and wrong. They're carrying a sense of guilt. And I'll guarantee you, if you start to ask them about the question of death, what are they going to do when they die? Where do you think they're going to go when they die? They may have that all figured out in their mind, but I'll guarantee you they're afraid of death. So don't be afraid to make contact with successful people. Because they have needs. Make contact with them. Pray for them. Walk across the street to make contact with them. There's no impact without contact. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't feel forced or driven to do it, but being led by the Holy Spirit to, to initiate conversation with successful business people. Use tact, use wisdom in building a bridge of relationship. That's what Paul did with Lydia, and we find that she was... Uh, baptized, her household was baptized, and she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come at my house and stay. So she persuaded us. The next person to be converted in, in the city of Philippi, it, the, the, the next European convert is a demonized slave girl. Acts 16, 16 through 18. Now it happened that we went out to prayer and a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and us crying out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And she came out of her that very hour. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Paul takes time to minister to one lost soul. Someone maybe no one else would see as very valuable. Maybe the kind of person you walk by every day and think, I don't really want to get in trouble, get, 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 get too involved with that person. They're going to take up way too much of my time. <laughs> I'm going to avoid that person. I'm going to walk past that person. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Why did Paul take time with this girl? She annoyed him. But then why did she, he take so long to deal with her? It's like I'm sure he was annoyed immediately. But he took time. It says a couple days she was following him around. Why do you think that Paul was waiting? Anybody have an idea? Waiting on God? Wanted to hear from God? What, am I, what are we dealing with here? What's going on here? Hang on. 
Yeah, what kind of demon are we dealing with here? Is it a demon, first of all? Yeah. I mean, don't be too quick to jump into situations. Make sure you've got what it takes. Don't get... Maybe some of them you just want to have them call Naomi. <laughs> she can deal with this stuff better than I can. <laughs> I've done that oftentimes. There's some people I know if you get involved with, like, this is going to take a lot of my time. And I don't probably have the gifting or the anointing to deal with this situation. But we have a church. We have a church that has specialties in all areas of sickness. <laughs> and it's like a hospital. Anybody that comes through that back door, I believe God has given us the gifting to help them. And we shouldn't turn our back on them. Because every person is valuable to God. Every person is just as valuable to God as the next person. A demonized slave girl God loves just as much as he loves the rich businesswoman. When the towers of New York City came down on September 11, 2001, 3,000 people died. A guy by the name of Ken Feinberg was hired by the United States government to assess the value of every person. He interviewed every family, found out how much this person was making, how much money they made, what they would have made over their lifetime, and then he compensated accordingly. One firefighter's wife said, why does the stockbroker's wife get a million dollars more than I get? My husband was just as valuable to me as he was to her. Ken Feinberg insists He's the guy who still gets called for these kind of situations and he will not do what the government tells him to do anymore to assess value according to riches. Compensation should be given the same amount because the value of a life cannot be measured in money. God loved the demonized slave girl just as much as he loved Lydia the next convert in the city of Philippi is a government employee who's about to lose his job, not only lose his job, but probably lose his life because his prisoners are going to escape from prison. Paul and Silas are put in prison and they're singing songs to God. I thought while we were praising God today, we need to realize that if you've got chains of bondage, you need to sing a little louder. <laughs> if you don't feel like singing today, you need to sing a little louder. If you don't feel God's worthy, it hasn't come through for you, you need to sing a little louder. Paul and Silas were singing hymns while they were chained together with other prisoners for doing nothing wrong, for obeying God, and they were praising God. And all of a sudden, the earthquake comes, and their, their, bonds, their chains are broken, and the doors of the prison are opened, and they all just sit there and wait. And the jailer sees the, jails, the doors open. He's about to kill himself when Paul and Silas say, no, 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 don't kill yourself. You're valuable to God. He says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your household. And they shall all be saved. The word believe has more to do with uh, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, not just a mental assent to a historical fact. Hello? 
Hello? I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but that doesn't get me to Washington, D.C. I believe Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and died on the cross for my sins. That's not going to get me to heaven. Putting my trust in him, confessing my sin, placing my dependence upon him. He's got my ticket. Fully persuaded. The majority of conversion, the conversion accounts in the book of Acts are of individuals. Did you notice that? So far up until Acts 16, it's like these great big groups of people, multitudes getting saved at the same time. But now it says that individuals are getting saved. The majority of conversion accounts in the book of Acts are of individuals, and it's interesting to note that not one person came to faith apart from the agency of a human being. Not one person came to faith in Christ without there being the involvement of, a, of an individual like Steve, like Jeff, like Dave, like Dean, like Carl, like Sherry. An agent of, a, of the, human, the human being activity. Paul had such a passion for the lost, he was willing to do anything to make it happen. I love to tell the story about the, the, well, maybe you guys have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Anybody not seen the movie? Then I have to tell you a little bit about it. Private Ryan had three brothers who were killed in World War II. Is it, is it right? He had three of them. There were four brothers. The fourth one is still behind enemy lines in France. And the general of the, the commander of the, of the whole military says, if that boy's still alive, we're going to get him out of there. So he selected Captain Miller and about seven or eight other guys to go find Private Ryan. One of the guys who was going with him said, hey, there's Germans over there. Uh-oh, this is dangerous. <laughs> One of the guys said, risking the lives of eight to save one does not make sense mathematically. Another one said, this mission is serious misallocation of valuable resources. You get where I'm going with this, right? Captain Miller says, this is an extremely valuable objective worthy of our very best effort. There are lost people out there worthy of our very best effort. So on we go to the city of uh, Thessalonica, sharing God's power throughout Europe. Paul and, and Silas were sharing Christ in the city of Thessalonica, chapter 17, 1 through 9. Thessalonica was a, 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 a city partway between the middle, between the east and the west. It's where east and west converged. There was lots of trade going in and out. It was a wealthy and prosperous city. And, and Paul begins to reason with them, demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, saying that Jesus is the Christ. That's what Naomi was saying, isn't it? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the God. Some Jews were persuaded, and, and many God-fearing Greeks were persuaded. And some leading women from the community were persuaded. Interesting that he brings that up. 
If we go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he tells us a little bit more about the message that he gave. He, it says that he came in, the, in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit and in assurance. And he says, we actually shared our lives with you. You see, this takes more than going to stand on the corner of a street and preaching. It takes giving your lives to people, getting involved with other people's lives and sharing what you have with them. And verse 6, it says that the message of this gospel was turning the world upside down. That's a, we take that as a compliment, turning the world upside down, but these guys didn't mean it as a compliment. They meant that they, these guys were, 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 were sowing uh, subversive activity politically, that they were trying to say, hey, there's a new king in town. They were, they were saying that these guys are saying that Caesar is being dethroned and Jesus is going to be throned. So maybe we should do a little upside down, turning the world a little upside down with the message. I think that's what Naomi was saying to us today. There's a revival coming when the church is armed with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he suffered, that he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. That is the message that we have to share. That's what Paul was preaching every city he went to. Who, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What do you do with Jesus Christ? This is a problem. People want to get you off on onto different kind of arguments, but everyone must answer that question. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Was he who he said he is? Was he God who died on the cross? That's why they crucified him. I was talking with Joel and I were sharing uh, with a Hindu guy when we were in Texas. And I said, you just need to read the Gospel of John and then come back to me and tell me why you think they killed Jesus. Do you know why they killed Jesus? Because he said he was God. <laughs> So he had to suffer and die, and then he was rose again from the dead. And this, this, Joel's got the guy's phone number. We're going to follow up with him. He said, after we shared with him, he said, next time you come to Texas, I'll give you a free room. He was the hotel innkeeper. So he didn't get mad at us. He didn't persecute us. He didn't uh, call the authorities on us. He, we, were, we became friends. We built the relationship. We started talking around the pool there in Texas, and we started sharing about asking him questions about his father and his and, and his family back in India and, and so on. And we built this little bridge toward him. I said, like, what do you do with Jesus Christ? Oh, I've heard all that. I said, well, you read the Gospel of John. He said, okay. See, you don't have to fight, but you can't, like, compromise. You can't just say, well, your Hindu religion's fine. They'll probably get you to heaven if you practice it the best you can. No, what are you going to do with Jesus Jesus is God, you know. He came to save you from your sin. He died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And he's coming again to sort you out. What will your decision be about Jesus? I think we take it just too flippantly. Like, this is a very serious message. The best way to witness to somebody is say, listen, I have something really important to talk to you about. It has eternal consequences. Would you have time for a cup of coffee with me? Would you have time to go to lunch with me? I have something so important that I need to talk to you because God really loves you. I mean, don't just get in and get out as quick as you can because you're afraid they might say something about you. Say, listen, I'm really concerned about you. So then Paul, again, was persecuted they chased out of the city of Thessalonica and went to Berea. They received the word of God with readiness and they searched the scriptures daily. 
See, some people are going to respond different than others. These people were responding to the word of God, and they, they wanted to know like, if what Paul was saying to them was really true. And they, they studied the scriptures to say, is this guy, what he's saying, is this, does this really line up? And then Paul went to, went to Athens, and he was provoked in his spirit because he saw so many idols. They were like religiously superstitious. He didn't have as much success in Athens, not because he didn't preach right, but because there was a spiritual atmosphere in, in Athens that wasn't as ripe as the, as the harvest was ripe in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Athens was a bit like Grand Rapids, Michigan, religiously superstitious. They think, oh, well, it's okay. Go ahead and preach to us, Paul. Until he got to the part where he said, Jesus rose from the dead. What are you going to do with that? And then they like mocked him, laughed at him. But it says, a few were converted and some joined them. Would that be worth it? Have one person join you if eight people mocked you? See, Paul was not motivated by success. We're such a success-oriented population that we don't do anything unless we can guarantee success because we hate failure. Everybody's a winner. Paul wasn't motivated by success, but he was motivated by obedience. He had a calling of God on his life. I watched another movie recently. This was when Sherry was gone. I watch these kind of movies when Sherry's gone. This one was called Hacksaw Ridge. How many have seen this? Hacksaw Ridge. It's about a conscientious objector during World War II. And he signs up for the military. He, 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 he volunteers to be a part of the, part of the war. Because all this, everybody was wanting to save the world. And, and, but he had a conviction that he would never carry a gun. So they gave him such a hard time in boot camp. Terrible hard time in boot camp. They almost kicked him out and, and put him in jail for not picking up the gun when the commander told him to. He said, I'm not going to pick up that gun. He said, I want to serve my country, sir. But I want to do it as a medic. I want to help people. I want to save people. So he gets shipped off with his, his brigade off to Okinawa. It was the uh, island that needed to be taken before they could launch the attack into the mainland of Japan. And, 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 they, and they come up on the shore of this Okinawa, and there's this great big mountain cliff. And all of the guys have to climb up this mountain cliff. And you know what happens when they get to the top of the cliff? There's a whole bunch of Japanese up there just gunning them down. That's an amazing movie. This guy ends up saving 75 wounded soldiers as his brigade is retreating back to camp. He stays up on that ridge saving people who are wounded. And he helps them down that mountain with some kind of a, a... a, a sling, and, and, and the movie focuses on his face, and he says, God, help me save just one more. Help me save just one more. I mean, his hands are bleeding because of the rope. He, he's, he's giving his life, and I'm sitting in the living room crying. I'm thinking this guy is wanting to save people for their temporary life, and all around us there are people who are dying for eternity. I'm putting a heavy message on you today. 
But I want to guarantee you, if you live with that burden, you'll be more successful in everything you do. You'll understand greater what God has for you. Sharing your faith will bring a greater understanding of what he did for you. You'll begin to understand deeper and deeper everything that God has lined up for your life. The depth of his love, the depth of his power. As we begin to share our faith, and you'll all do it a little differently. In the context of living a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own business, seems contradictory, doesn't it? But as you get to know people, as you are motivated by love, not by an obligation, but motivated by love, Lord, will you give us your heart? Will you give us your heart that you love Lydia and the demonized slave girl and the government worker who's about to lose his job, the person who's about to commit suicide? Give me your heart, Lord. Help me to see how you see people. I believe it's the revival Naomi's talking about. When the church gets a hold of this message and we start sharing the gospel and we make it really hard for people in our city to go to hell because everywhere they turn, somebody's telling them that God loves them. I did it just the other day when we were in Texas. See, I had a little more time on my hands in Texas. I don't do this because I get too busy. We're just coming out of a restaurant and I saw a guy come hobbling in and I just went over and said to him, you know, God loves you. He said, thank you. Praise God. So I'm not like saying that everybody needs to become Apostle Paul or Pastor Randy, but each of you are uniquely gifted to share the love of Jesus with somebody in your life. Maybe it's one person that you build a relationship to that someday they will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just think if every person here led one person to the Lord in their lifetime, that would be huge. It would make a huge difference in the kingdom of God. I really fired you up today, didn't I? You're all going out here like, Oh, Randy laid another heavy on us today. Another thing we need to do. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, make it your ambition to live a life that's pleasing to God. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians a couple years later, he says, live a life that's pleasing to God. And he gets very specific. He says, love one, one another more and more. You're really doing this, oh, good already. You're already loving each other, but you can love each other even more. So let's start with that. Love one another even more. And then he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the city of Thessalonica was rabid with sexual immorality. They didn't know what uh, purity was even about. They knew nothing about sexual purity. This was a city that, that was just rampant with sexual immorality. So Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, Love one another more and more. Live with, abstain from sexual immorality. And then he says, make it your ambition 
to lead a quiet life. Work with your hands. Mind your own business. So, you don't have to sign up for the mission field today. You're already in it. You're already in it. You're already in it. Just stand with me today.